right, cool. Let's keep going on the Baudrillard train here. Well, the simulacrum simulation train. Right into the chapter titled The Implosion of Meaning in the Media. So Baudrillard begins this chapter by proposing three hypotheses, or that there could be three hypotheses. The first goes as follows. Either information produces meaning, a negentropic factor, but cannot make up the brutal loss of signification in every domain, or information has nothing to do with signification, it is merely something else, an operational model of another order, outside meaning, and of the circulation of meaning, strictly speaking, and the third hypothesis is that, very much on the contrary, there is a rigorous and necessary correlation between the two, to the extent that information is directly destructive of meaning and signification, or that it neutralizes them. So, you know, without necessarily taking sides or trying to point to which one of these theses is the most correct, uh, I actually don't know if anyone who's, who's done that, but anyways... Sticking to the general theme that we uh, explored in the last part to this uh, this book, the term obscenity plays a pretty interesting role in Baudrillard's work. So, when in this chapter, at least with the title, when he's referring to a thing called an, an implosion of meaning, it's really an abundance of meaning. So that is tied to the term obs obscenity, which is really just taking your given factor, your given instance, and bringing it to, to the nth factor, right? Becoming more than itself, the hyper-real version. So now we can transpose another term into here, and instead of dealing with the implosion of the meaning, the implosion of meaning in the media, we can simply say the, the obscenity of the media. And it really is obscene. It's obscene not just in its content, or rather not just in its form, in the degree to which it's Pro, it proliferates, but really in what is being distributed. It's it's really quite it's absurd in, in very many ways, the things that make that make news. Wide scale suffering, systemic oppression, these these sorts of things very rarely make make the news, right? What what is more interesting of course is what well, um, I remember seeing this one headline God, it must be a few years ago. It was a it was a a headline stating that just about how a woman w said thank you to someone else in, in like line to a Tim Hortons or, or um, Baskin Robbins, I think, and it, it boggled my mind. But that's, you know, perhaps we're getting a little, or I'm getting a little bit away from obscenity and getting simply into banality at this point. But the sentiment is certainly there. So Baudrillard takes the time in this chapter to really focus on on information because messages for him are a thing that have a certain historical quality right and that don't that aren't necessarily grounded or don't have an affinity with um, the oppressive mechanisms of the code of hyper reality that we see present in this text or present today so information is that which being in many ways the obscenity or an example of that with its with the proliferation of it, where it's not about uh, information for the sake of anything except for the sake of more information. What we're dealing with then is we've well we've entered some new phase in the age or in communication. So there's something to clarify about that.
for Baudrillard, their communication in itself is not something to that we should celebrate. Communication is a product of you know the day and age dealing with hyper reality to some extent. But I I'm just using the term here in the most general sense, just dialogue between between persons. So information is taking that beyond its limits, right? But not simply beyond its limits, doesn't not simply in the way that, you know, Marx may have visioned in the Gundrissa of capital circumventing uh, its limits. But now we're really, uh, we've really, it's entered uh, an escape velocity, which is a term he employs in ooh, Illusion of the End, I think, um, where there is no end, right? It's not as though a new limit is created, as would be the, the discourse surrounding capital, where, where limits are constantly created, or, or plateaus in, in the case of Deleuze and Guattari, but we're really on a steady course, or perpetual acceleration into the void, into space, having accomplished escape velocity. So, effectively then, as he states, information devours its own content. It devours communication in the social, and for two reasons. The first, rather than creating communication, it exhausts itself in the act of staging communication. Rather than producing meaning, it exhausts itself in the staging of meaning. And then the second, before I go back and kind of unpack each, is that behind this exacerbated mise-en-scene of communication, the mass media, the pressure of information pursues an irresistible destructuration of the social. Thus information dissolves meaning and dissolves the social in a sort of nebulous state dedicated not to a surplus of innovation, but on the contrary to total entropy. So in a sense, these, these are very similar, um, very similar uh, explanations for the role that information plays in, you know, its own candlelistic type tendencies in that it devours its own image or its own content. And the effect that this has had on uh, sociality is made plain to see when Baudrillard states that whoever is underexposed to the media is desocialized or virtually asocial. I, uh, I can give some you know, I, I would normally try to avoid anecdotal evidence, but in, in opposition to what Baudrillard proposes here, and it's not a great uh, counter-argument, I, I went a, very many years, I only recently got a cell phone for my however many years going through university and all that, and I wouldn't say I was any less social than anyone else, so what I would propose with that is that despite Baudrillard's claim where, you know, we have, when we read him we kind of have to accept that he's speaking about, you know, these totalizing systems. So the media is just one, being just one. Where even those spaces that fall outside of it, in a kind of um, Hegelian turn, in the way that, you know, Foucault thinks about it at the end of um, the archaeology of knowledge, even those spaces that fall out of it work for it in some way or other. Whether it be through a, you know, a sort of affirmation through negation, negation type thing. But what, however you'd have it, I, from my own, ex, from my own experience, 
I feel as though there are ways to oppose this uh, structure. And it, it you know, has to be a very individualistic thing. Uh, a whole, you know, a totalizing framework to challenge a totalizing framework would just mirror the same, uh, the same structural inequalities or the same structural issues that Bogeritz is present here in the world, that is. So, and I, ironically, I don't want to place all this emphasis on the individual, but in a sense, given, you know, my own experience, or how each and any one of us finds our ways to disconnect, if, if we do, um, there do seem to be moments in which these systems are opposed. So, if I jump back a little bit to some of his previous texts, Baudrillard does outline modes of resistance. You know, many people like to think, at least many people I've spoken to, think that, you know, Baudrillard is a very cynical, pessimistic thinker, very apathetic, uh, generally complacent in the logic of the system. But, in fact, he, he, poses, um, he proposes that there are ways to challenge system in some way or other. One of them would include graffiti. Uh, I think that he's, there are moments when he's, you know, really likes, he advocates for like street violence, stuff like that, stuff that really throws a, a wedge or really disturbs, uh, the, I guess, the tranquility of it all. So this kind of totalizing system, well, Baudrillard takes this idea uh, to suggest that if there is such a system, then the idea of the medium, or the media, would fall prey to that very totalization. So consequently, he argues that, uh, finally, the medium is the message not only signifies the end of the message, but also the end of the medium. He continues, there are no more media in the literal sense of the word. I'm speaking particularly of electronic mass media. That is, of a mediating power between one reality and another, between one state of the real and another neither in content nor in form. Strictly, this is what implosion signifies, the absorption of one pole into the other. He, and he continues, the medium and the real are now in a single nebula whose truth is indecipherable. So at one time, you know, following McLuhan's uh, famous proposal, the medium is the message, that implied in some capacity that there was a distinction to be made not only between the medium and the message, but between the medium and the person viewing it, the kind of unnamed subject that is there to observe this uh, interaction or this, you know, uh, chiastic reversal. That's a redundant term, but this reversal between the medium and the message. These two things have come together, right? They folded into one another, according to Baudrillard. This subject, because they too have fallen prey to this system, have taken on a new form, right? They've now come to occupy the role of the, the masses, which is a term that is a little bit is explored a little bit um, in a little bit more depth in the uh, shadow in the shadow of the silent majority. It's probably the one I'll do after this book here. But what he says of this is that there is a paradox in the inextricable conjunction of the masses and the media. And he asks, do the media neutralize meaning and produce un unformed? or informed masses, or is it the masses who victoriously resist the media by direct, directing or absorbing all the messages that the media produce, 
without responding to them some time ago in Requiem for the Media. Requiem for the Media was another text that he wrote that was compiled in for a critique of the political economy of the sign. What he did there is very much the same as what he's doing here right now. Here there's a little bit more of an emphasis on this thing called simulation, which he hadn't fully um, grasped or hadn't fully explored in that previous text. That was his third book for a critique of the political economy of the sign. But anyways, sorry, I digress. Some time ago, in Requiem for the Media, I analyzed and condemned the media as the institution of an irreversible model of communication without a response. But today, this absence of a response can no longer be understood at all as a strategy of power, but as a counter-strategy of the masses themselves when they encounter power. What then? He goes on to ask, Are the mass media on the side of power in the manipulation of the masses, or, on the, or are they on the side of the masses in the liquidation of meaning, in the violence perpetuated on meaning, and in fascination? So, if it's the latter, where there's a total dissipation of meaning, we could hardly propose that there's such a thing called power, because power relies rather heavily on uh, a certain circulation of meaning. And let me explain that. In the first volume to the history of sexuality, Foucault lays out the ways in which uh, cer certain um, uh, s sexual discourses to be found within the medical institutions rely heavily on the ability for such discourses to proliferate, to extend, to provide the semblance of a certain attachment between you know, a fabricated individual or a subject with said sexuality, which can then be diagnosed, which can then enter into the fold of the um, uh, medical institutions. So in that way, I, I would propose, and there, if there was someone else here, I'm sure we could do a better job at kind of, you know, unpacking that a little more. The relationship power has the meaning is, is present. So in this way, when, if, when Baudrillard proposes that there is a dissipation of meaning, especially in the way that the masses digest it, consume it, don't, you know, make nothing of it, uh, then we can see the general disappearance of power. So this was in some ways his critique of Foucault in Forget Foucault and in Symbolic Exchange and Death, right? Where Baudrillard's thinking um, about critical theory after power, about critical theory after production, about critical theory after the unconscious, where he just proposes that we can't take these things as being unchanging, um, always present entities, but that are actually negotiated in some form or other. So, I would, you know, tread on the side of the ladder and say there's a general um, disappearance of power. It is, it, it's absorbed, rendered, it's kind of diluted, right? Where meaning, if it is distributed to everyone, and I don't want to sound like a shitty elitist, but if meaning is distributed to everyone in some form or other, then can it, I wonder if it can keep being meaning, where there is a certain esotericism, esotericism, meaning is rather esoteric, and if you take away that component, I wonder if you'd still be left with meaning. So in the face of this, we're left with one strategy. And that strategy is to oppose this proliferation of meaning, the kind of extension of ideas, which very ironically, 
I am doing the very opposite of right now. But Baudrillard would want to see that. The dissipation of these uh, these technologies of, ma of the mass media. So one example, another way I could illuminate this is with uh, the example of France. There's a pretty fantastic book called The Discovery of France that deals with the subject of France becoming Paris. Now what I mean by that is that outside of Paris for a very long time there was hardly this thing called France. You know, from village to village People spoke different languages, they believed very different things about uh, mysticism, about spirituality, about culture, whatever these things may have meant at the time. But then, you know, with the development of trains, with, of communication, slowly where these ideas were coming out of, notably Paris, the country side began to look like Paris, not physically but rather the culture started to adapt and assimilate to that. So in a, in a sense, a Baudrillardian critique has to consider that as well, where it's not just about the mass media and how we think about it in relation to CNN or Fox, but just communication in general that, that far predates these contemporary institutions. So Baudrillard continues this idea in the, in the following chapter, Absolute Advertising, Ground Zero Advertising. Um, to kind of propose a, uh, to think about advertising in relation to his ideas in the previous chapter. So what he says is that uh, advertising has led to the general disappearance of a distinction between, you know, consumers and producers. So he's able to make this argument by stating that as a medium becomes its own message, um, advertising is completely in unison with the social whose historical necessity has found itself absorbed by the pure and simple demand for the social, the demand that the social function like a business, a group of services, a mode of living, or of survival. The social must be saved just as nature must be preserved. The social is our niche, whereas formerly it was a sort of revolution in its very project. So the mediated image, or at least if we think about advertising specifically, advertising for the sake of consuming an object, is not simply to consume said object, but it is in the service of consuming advertising if we follow along with Baudrillard's claims, does serve something of a cultural um, need, you know, being part of that endless proliferation, hence the endless consumption. We want to be consuming said advertising as well, therefore contributing at least um, supplementing his thoughts about that subject in relation to the idea of the medium and the message, where that subject no longer has, um, I guess, that sort of autonomy they once had in being able to recognize the thing that they actually want, where they're, you know, being fed things beyond their control, or things they may not even know about. But even more, this comes out in other forms, where it's not simply the passive consumer that loses this sort of identity, but the person that is, you know, an active agent in, you know, the world as a political agent, precisely because, as he states, the economic and the political have folded into one another, or become indistinguish indistinguishable in the age of the mass media, any sort of political agent um, is in themselves working within an economic system, which is, we've, at that point, entered uh, a great deal of ambiguity, 
won't be able to actually discern the extent to which they belong to either or category. So this results in some kind of um, uh, a passage from fundamentally saying and repeating incessantly, I buy, I consume, I take pleasure, today repeats in other forms, I vote, I participate, I am present, I am concerned, which, all, which are the mirror of a paradoxical mockery, mirror of the indifference of all public signification. So you have on the one end, those people that are indifferent, right, that just don't simply engage. And on the other end, you have the way in which those people that do engage are in fact participating in the very system they seek to oppose, hence his claim that it is the mirror of that sort of political indifference. But again, I would like to uh, make clear that for my own part, I don't see this as being Baudrillard's claim for there being a lack of opportunity for resistance or anything of that sort, but that we must consider we must consider the extent to which the resistance in which we engage in at, at any point does in fact reproduce that logic of the system. Now this is this is an important exercise to conduct at any at any given time, thinking about, I don't know, the racism present in uh, some LGBTQ communities or the sexism present in some of, some of such communities, and I just use that one because it's uh, floating around quite prominently today, how these things have to be addressed in, in such communities, and that is for the better, in part, of that very, of that very uh, community, or of that very, it would be uh, erroneous to simply call, call that, those groups, uh, resistive groups, like these are people who are uh, trying to survive with every breath they can muster, but how they're is present in those very groups sort of micro-fascisms, right, you know, in the Deleuzean sense, that have to be addressed. And in very much the same way, I believe that there is such a thing, these things can be addressed, or at least the concerns that Baudrillard raises in, in any other, any group, any sort of resistive capacity, so as to try and push a, a form of resistance that does, in fact, consider that. So, generally, we can think of this system as being, you know, thinking about the beginning of this book, the produce, production of um, things without there being an original, production of images, information, messages, without an original. Uh, Baudrillard proposes um, a historical alternative, and that is the form of the double. So what he says about the double, which has that sort of affinity with, you know, we think of Freud and the Heimlich, the unheimlich, he states that of all the prostheses that mark the history of the body, the double is doubtless the oldest. But the double is precisely not a prosthesis. It is an imaginary figure, figure which, just like the soul, the shadow, the mirror image, haunts the subject like his other. So uh, a good example of this can be found at the end of The Consumer Society, his second book, with the story The uh, Student in Prague, which a uh, five-second overview a student in Prague sells his soul to the devil, doesn't sell his soul, sells his image to the devil uh, in order to get some money or get something, and all of a sudden the student can no longer get anything done because the devil, his clone, his, his double, if you will, uh, has taken over his life, it does everything in advance, to the point that the student gets so fed up with this he decides to kill his double, only to find that as he shoots his double dead, 
he starts to die too. So th this idea has been with Baudrillard for a little while. So what he says we are, we've entered now is something that opposes that idea of a double. Because the double was for him, double was for him that which makes it so that the subject is simultaneously itself and never resembles itself again, which haunts the subject like a subtle and always averted death. So this plays into the thesis he's, he proposes in Seduction, that idea of the secret of the challenge, that kind of unknown factor, that kind of unknown component, the unheimlich, that thing that can sneak in and not by showing us something we are not familiar with undo us, but by showing us something we are overly familiar with undo us, right? You know, the horror films that take place in the residential streets where the, you know, the real horror is not to be found in the poltergeist of it, but it's to be found in the actions of the humans or, or, or anything like that, especially in, you know, zombie films. It's really the, uh, like, television series. Um, the humans are really the messed up ones, yet we, you know, we think about the zombies as occupying that, that place, but it really takes that double figure to make that apparent to us. In the age of the clone, however, we're, we see that simply disappear. So what he says is that clones, cloning, human cuttings ad infinitum, each individual cell of an organism capable of again becoming the matrix of an identical individual. In the United States, a child was born a few, a few months ago, like a geranium from cuttings, the first clone child. So to arrive at this point of being able to clone things, which ironically uh, results in a sort of death, because as he says, when the double historically has made itself manifest or apparent, that's when the death would ensue. At least that's, that's the case in some, you know, some of the stories he um, quotes in, the, in his previous texts. In very much that capacity, precisely because the clone is the exact physical uh, manifestation of the double, in a sense, ad infinitum, we find ourselves in a perpetual death, right? We lose that thing that makes us human, notably, you know, that ability to produce humans biologically or whatever, and now, precisely because we have lost that very ability to give, give birth in that sense, not because it's disappeared yet, but it's on, on its way, kind of like the Frankenstein dream where you have, you know, Victor Frankenstein really just being afraid of, of women, you know, women disgusting, gross women. And him saying, how can I get around a woman to make a child, right? To have children. In what way can we circumvent the limitations of the, of the biological in order to achieve the same results at an ultra-fast, you know, ultra-clean way? So what, we, what, what phase we've arrived at is, um, I guess, in a sense, the hyperreal body phase, the hyperreal um, birthing phase, if we can, if clones really take off in that way. But that leads him to say that already biophysioanatomical -physio science, by dissect dissecting the body into organs and functions, begins the process of the analytic decomposition of the body, and micromolecular genetics is nothing but the logical consequence though at a much higher level, of abstraction and simulation. 
so that of reducing the body to parts to to understandable, graspable things. Um, the th very much the things that uh, Foucault describes in *The Birth of the Clinic*. You know that desire to cut open bodies. You know what that chapter? Uh, let's cut open some corpses, or I forget what it's titled exactly. Where that desire was sort of came about, right? To kind of unravel, to unearth the secret depths of the human body in order to make them manifest, to make them apparent. Now for Baudrillard, what that does is it essentially brings up the body into the domain of the code, into the domain of hyperreality, into the domain of, I will say, the real. It makes it apparent and it makes it understandable, graspable, enters into the very logic of our system. So what this ultimately culminates into is for Baudrillard the end of the body. Now this is something that I, my own work deals with, is thinking about uh, Baudrillard in relation to post-humanism, where uh, I don't want to read Baudrillard as someone that you know romanticizes this humanist figure, this human figure that once existed, but rather when Baudrillard talks about the end of the human, right, or the expulsion of the human, or anything like that, what I believe he's referring to is the end of the human as possibility or the end of the human as ambiguity, if you will. And it is in, the, if we can think of, of Baudrillard being post-humanism, that is not something to be celebrated because that is something where the body has entered into this bio and anatomical physical um, location that has ripped away its radical alterity that has taken away its illusion in favor of its total operativity. So when Baudrillard is referring to it like the body as it once existed or the human, what I believe he means is that is the human that is always changing. It's that human that resists classification and therefore when he uses the term human, it's not a steady figure. It's just a, he uses it metaphorically. It's just to just to help signify what it is he's talking about. Now it would have been helpful if he actually said that at some point, because on first glance it would seem as though okay, let's all we have to do is go back to this kind of uh, figure here, or that oh Baudrillard like you say that you're opposed to these kind of scientific apparatuses because they designate, codify, determine the human. When in fact you believe at a time that that was a, like a human has always been as such. And it would be quite ironic and it leaves him open to attack. And it's certainly attacks I've seen. But I try to defend him in, in that way. And he also takes this moment to think about uh, cancer. And the way that cancer, you know, being a disease of this kind of post-human, ultra-human. How, what role that that plays. And for him... It is useless to ask oneself if cancer is an illness of the capitalist age. So he makes a distinction here. It is in effect the illness that controls all contemporary pathology because it is the very form of the virulence of the, co of the code, an exacerbated redundancy of the same signals, an exacerbated redundancy of the same cells. This an idea expands upon in uh, chapter virulence and prophylaxis in screened out, I believe is when it first appeared. Um, but where he says that cancer, and in, and there he talks about AIDS, but I'll get into that when I, when I get to that text. 
But cancer for him, precisely because it represents the proliferation or it demands a certain proliferation of cells, albeit negative cells, um, matches and in a sense mirrors the very logic of the system. So it's, it's for that reason he says that, okay, you know, of course he recognizes that cancer has existed for a very long time. He uses it as a, as a metaphor to think about the way in which nothing lies outside of the system, right? Disease is very much a part of it. And in what ways do diseases affect certain populations? Certain populations that exist outside of the domain of, you know, the sterilized, whitewashed system in which we find ourselves disproportionately, and how does it disproportionately affect such people? Which is ultimately just an attempt, just a strategy by the system to eradicate difference, to eradicate contradiction. So Baudrillard, like, like Apocalypse Now, looks at another piece of another cultural artifact, um, Crash. So Crash is, um, is a book by, oh my god, deluding me, J.G. Uh, Ballard, sorry. I, I haven't read the book, I've seen the film, Cronenberg's uh, Crash. So in that film, there are, the, there are people that love watching cars crash, and they reenact certain famous deaths. Uh, with people actually in the cars, and people actually get hurt, but this, this arouses people to see cars crashing together. So what Baudrillard says about that is from a classical, even cybernetic perspective, technology is an extension of the body. It is the functional sophistication of human organism that permits it to be equal to nature and to invest triumphantly in nature. So he goes on, in the apocalyptic and baroque version of Crash, technology is the mortal, deconstruction of the body, no longer a functional medium, but the extension of death, the dismemberment and cutting to pieces, not in the pejorative allusion to a, of a lost unity of the subject, which is still the horizon of psychoanalysis, but in, in the explosive vision of, the, of a body delivered to symbolic wounds, of a body confused with technology in its violating and violent dimension, in the savage and continual surgery that violence exercises, incisions, excisions, scarifications, the chasms of the body, of which the sexual wounds and pleasures of the body are only a particular case, and mechanical servitude in work, its pacified carcature, a body without organs, or pleasure of the organs, entirely subjected to the mark, to cutting, to the technical scar, under the shining sign of a sexuality without a referential and without limits. So in a way has this notion of sexuality kind of, you know, Deleuze in uh, Dream realized, in what way does this body not point to anything human per se, but is really just an extension of the logic of the, take the vehicle for instance, take for instance, um, the ad. you ever watch a car ad, and one of the things you notice in the car ad is that there's, there's very, very often a kind of narrative around escape in car ads about a sort of liberation, emancipating oneself from limits, from boundaries. So Baudrillard sees that happening here. And the way in which sexuality plays with that in the film Crash or in the book Crash, for him, shows the way in which the logic of the code in some form or other, seeing no limits, right, trying to ground everything in its purview, how that affects not only advertising, but sexuality, and not only advertising or sexuality, but technology. 
So the result has been, and this is, he gets to this by looking at Crash, and in this chapter, you know, he, he presents very long quotes um, and kind of analyzes each of them. But he says that their fiction, or sorry, in Crash, no more fiction or reality. It is hyper-reality that abolishes both. Not even a critical regression is possible. This mutating and commutating world of simulation and death, this violently sexed world, but one without desire, full of violated and violent bodies, as if neutralized, this chromatic world in metallic intensity, but one void of sensuality, hyper-technology without finality. Is it good or bad? We will never know. Which is an important note, important thing to consider, in that there are many moments in which Baudrillard, you know, even questions his own challenge. Says that, you know what, ultimately we might just be entering another phase of this thing called the human, of this thing called society, of this thing called culture. And to some extent, can we simply tread on the side of uh, critique? In what way must we instead think about, you know, possibility? But it's not something he ever really lays out. Perhaps Deleuze is, is a way, Deleuze and Guattari are a way to get at that, you know, thinking about sort of deterritorialization or uh, body without organs, rhizomes, any, any of those sorts of things that, you know, seek opportunity in a system that I believe is ultimately hell-bent on limiting possibility, but that has will never fully be successful. At least, I hope not. Uh, like, if there is always a glimmering hope, a small avenue to kind of get under the system, to craft your own way, then we will, we will find it. And, it, and they are more, uh, more present than we might think, perhaps. It can exist almost anywhere, I think, these kind of avenues of escape, of a challenge, simply by being exterior. So moving from Crash, Baudrillard thinks about science fiction more generally. Oh, I have a cat. Okay. What are you going to do now? You're going to try and get up there? Okay. Good luck with that. Oh, you made it. Good. Uh, he rethinks in this chapter, thinking about science fiction, his three orders of simulacra. So very quickly, uh, uh, there's the counterfeit, you know, the first stage. The second stage is production. And the third stage is the code. Right? We're going from... You know, in my very vulgar example, th th this is something that he lays out in Symbolic Exchange and Death. There's a, another smaller published work called Simulations that places uh, the chapter from Symbolic Exchange and Death and the Procession of Simulacra, the first chapter in here, together, which, it, which is good to read back to back. But um, yeah, so we have these three, these three orders, and the way in which I think about it would be uh, where the counterfeit is that, you know, production of reality in the form of a painting or whatever um, that is very much a move away from reality. Uh, the second order production, much more difficult to um, to kind of lay out in my mind, but as he states it here, it's simulacra that are productive, productivist, founded on energy, force, its materialization by the machine, by the machine, and in the whole system of production. So in this one, we we find the real. For him, what he states in uh, symbolic exchange and death. And then the third phase being the code, 
or the total operationality, hyperreality, theme of total control, essentially. So for him, science fiction is caught in the second order, along with the real, or reality, a thing that, as I'd mentioned, uh, where production exists, where libidinal drives exist, where the unconscious exists, anything of that sort. So for us, he states that we have a sort of nostalgia for second-order simulacra of the real, right? We've totally lost sight of the third stage. And even today, I'd go so far as to say that if, in my, as anyone would listen to my last uh, video here, um, proposing that after the fourth stage, which is something I kind of unpack a little bit, you see a kind of uh, endless proliferation, we have a certain sort of yearning for the third phase. But now, when he's writing this book, he's thinking we have a, a yearning for the second phase, the real. So that's where science fiction is. Which leads him to say this. Perhaps, science fiction from the cybernetic and hyper-real era can only exhaust itself, and its artificial resurrection of historical worlds can only try to reconstruct in vitro, down to the smallest details, the perimeters of a prior world, the events, the people, the ideologies of the past, emptied of meaning, of their original process, but hallucinatory, with retrospective truth. Now, does that truth ever really exist? That's cer certainly a point of contention. But for me, um, um, it's not something that ever fully, was ever fully realized. You know, as he states in a later book, Reality only existed briefly, and then it began to disappear. Reality only had a very short lifespan before it died, before it disappeared, before it succumbed to the third order. So science fiction, in that sense, doesn't create the possibility or predict a certain future. Or the, take, Let's take the example of Black Mirror. Uh, really, you know, a cool show. But a show that has kind of evoked a sort of nostalgia for a time, or at least by opening up a sort of criticism of our, you know, reliance on technology in whatever capacity it's demonstrated in any episode, how in what way those, those technologies are moving us away from a sort of, air quotes, real human being, which is just a reality that belongs to another order of simulation for Baudrillard here. So it's not as though we'd ever really be going back to something good, to something that is more real than real. And even if we did, that would just be another trompe l'oeil. Like we, it would just be another trick of the eye, just um, play, just simply placed into a sort of artificial type resurrection of a time that never existed, right? A, a total matrix, if you will. So in very many ways. Certain oppressive uh, institutions only began to exist as soon as we started to claim that there was a sort of rational um, aspect to the human, right? So he states that, uh, in the same way one discovers psychology, sociology, the sexuality of prisoners, as soon as it becomes impossible to purely and simply incarnate them, one discovers that the prisoner needs li liberty, sexuality, normalcy to withstand prison. Just as industrial industrial bred animals need a certain quality of life to die within the norm. So he continues that never would the humanities or psychoanalysis have existed 
if it had been miraculously possible to reduce man to his rational behaviors. So the whole discovery of the psychological whose complexity can extend ad infinitum comes from nothing but the impossibility of exploiting to death, of incarnating to death, of fattening to death, in the case of the animals, according to the strict law of equivalences. So only by making those things understandable, graspable, you know, the kind of uh, logic of modernity, the enlightenment logic that led inevitably to the gas chambers, that led inevitably to, you know, death camps, really awful things. So he mentions animals, and he takes some time to think about that for some reason. I don't know why. It's interesting. I just don't know why he thought of that. But what he says about that is that animals were only demoted to the status of inhumanity as a reason and humanism progressed. A logic parallel to that of racism. An objective animal reign has only existed since man has existed. It would take too long to reduce the genealogy of their respective statuses, but the abyss that separates them today, the one that permits us to send beasts in our place to respond to the terrifying universe of space and laboratories, the one that permits the liquidation of species even as they are archived as specimens of the African reserves or in the hell of zoos. Since there is no room for them in our culture than there is for the dead, the whole covered by racist sentimentality, baby seals, uh, Brigitte, <coughs> excuse me, Brigitte Bardot, this abyss that separates them follows domestication, just as true racism follows slavery, which is a fascinating claim, because can we say that Racism is something that exists prior to its, I guess, institutional manifestation. Where, let me give an example. There, there's a book that I haven't read yet uh, by Roberto Colasso. Colasso, I believe it's called. Uh, in a, it's, it's in Italian. It's called Il Celeste. Let me look it up. It's yeah. It's called Il Cacciatore Celesta. No, I. My Ita I don't have any Italian, so that, that pronunciation probably sucked. But reading the description, he claims to that humans at one time, let's say they left their community or their village or, or whatever, and they came across another human or an animal they didn't recognize. They did not know if they were in the presence of the same species. They did not know if they were in the presence of gods, of animals, of or, or anything else. Because they simply didn't have that those broad categories of human, animal, anything like that. So, can um, at that time before the kind of systematic introduction of these broad categories, before that time, can it be? Could it have been considered that racism permeated? I would say not, because it wasn't as though we had a sort of logic to explain it or a sort of logic that abides by some kind of historical foundation. Where in this case, what Baudrillard is saying is that racism, by only existing after slavery, it has entered into a sort of uh, totalizing systemic logic. Not to say that the, slavery wasn't terrible, like he, there's no, he doesn't suggest anything of that sort, but the way in which our relationship to that has changed, and how it enters and perhaps, it's difficult to say, or hierarchize, but in some ways an even more oppressive formulation, which is rather terrible to say, because I really, it's not one or the other, but how it's certainly something to consider, whether or not it's worse, 
worse or not, the way in which racism still permeates, and how it has a certain ultra-negative effect precisely, because, precisely by its relationship to a system of domination, to the oppressive nature of hyper-reality or of the code that seek to quantify, locate, understand everything, and then determines how certain people, certain races, certain sexes, certain genders don't belong within that. So to return again to the case of animals, uh, thinking about a thing like domestication, which for some might seem to be, you know, you rescue an animal, you rescue a cat. Now that that's all well and good. Um, I don't think animals and cats are different things, by the way. That's all well and good. But that is only possible because we live in a system in which it is viewed as such where an animal is actually a risk or an animal will actually live a better life by being taken away from nature, right? That's the conditions, that's one of the conditions we've created. So of that, Baudrillard says that our sentimentality towards animals is a sure sign of the disdain in which we hold them or that general lack of respect we have for them, Tell you know, not to say that animals don't have language, I don't want to be a kind of Heideggerian about this, but that we believe wholeheartedly that we know what's best for animals, we know what's best for their well-being. So in a sense, um, so not in a sense, Baudrillard takes aim at Deleuze here to say that essentially the animal is a territorial being, right, and we kind of denied it that, that possibility. Of which he says that, um, as a model for the absolute, der uh, sorry, they served in turn, they served in turns as metaphors for virtue and vice, as an energetic and ecological model, as a mechanical and formal model in bionics, as a phantasm phantasmatic register for the unconscious, and lastly as a model for the absolute deterritorialization of desire in Deleuze's becoming animal. Paradoxical, he says. To take the animal as a model of deterritorialization when he is the territorial being par excellence. Par excellence. So, what, you know, for those perhaps unfamiliar with Deleuze's thing, it's kind of going to a thousand plateaus and the way in which the idea of the animal being that kind of, for him, a deterritorialized being presents an avenue, an opportunity. I'm butchering it because I don't have a whole lot of time to get into it kind of presents an avenue, an opportunity for the human to mobilize a sort of change within themselves, which Baudrillard sees as being odd because the animal is that territorial being, like, it, at its core, is that thing that resists changing spots, resists physically deterritorializing itself. So it is true, then, when Baudrillard states that animals have no unconscious because they have a territory, and that men have only had an unconscious since they lost the terry, territory. Precisely because only when we have lost something that, or the territory, kind of lost that, excuse me, that idea of singularity, an idea, an idea he puts forth in his later work, it's only when that has sort of disappeared that we have this thing called the unconscious come into fruition, right? It kind of attaches us to a, a realness to it. it grounds us within ourselves as opposed to a land as opposed to a territory and it g gives us meaning in that way so I'd like to jump a little bit uh, to the to the last chapter here on nihilism because it's interesting given uh, some of the charges against Baudrillard but before that just briefly 
uh, Baudrillard makes an interesting claim about uh, the political left. So for him, the political left, as I mentioned briefly, I kind of uh, touched upon this in the last um, video, the last episode, that the left dreams wholeheartedly of a thing called power still existing, because that is what they're based on. The idea that there is, you know, a form of power, whether it be fascist, totalitarian, dictatorship or whatever, that it is supposed to oppose and therefore keeps trying to rejuvenate the idea of that uh, in order to, I guess, produce a sort of counter-narrative, which, as we've, if we accept Baudrillard's argument, is certainly just another trick the system plays because it feeds into that, you know, still that proliferation of meaning, the proliferation of messages within the media sphere. So, yeah, I just like that point. But I want to jump to the last chapter on nihilism because he says flat out, I am a nihilist, word for word. So he says that I observe, I accept, I assume the immense process of the destruction of appearances. Now this is uh, according to Jerry Coulter, who is um, founder of the International Journal of Baudrillard Studies, that Baudrillard is speaking to, in his work primarily, a strategy of indifference. Now what does that necessarily look, necessarily look like? Well, Baudrillard states that those who strike with meaning is killed by meaning. So we must, unless we wish to be killed by the very logic of the system that we seek to oppose, we must resist meaning. What better way to resist meaning than to, you know, take on this rule of nihilist or nihilism? Now, for my own part, not that anyone really cares, this isn't something that I hold on to in my own political affairs. Uh, for me, I see a, a divide. I think there is that which I can always consider in the theoretical domain and allow it to influence the way in which I engage in my political life. But at the same time, I always see the uh, necessity of challenging, the necessity of being outside and engaging in political activities and whatnot. But rather, I digress. So what Baudrillard says that if it is nihilistic to privilege this point of inertia, so this point of inertia uh, is, is kind of that perpetual proliferation of images, perpetual proliferation of meaning. So if it is nihilistic to privilege this point of inertia and the analysis of the irreversibility of systems up to the point of no return, then I am a nihilist. So the only challenge he suggests is that theoretical violence, not truth, is the only resource left to us. And as, as we know, or as some of us may know from other of his readings, um, the, the goal of theory for Baudrillard, which would be theoretical violence, is to wrest the world from its indeterminacy, to make the world more unintelligible. To make the world more unintelligible, to make it more obscure. Because as soon as we enter into this domain of truth, what has to be done, uh, what outcomes will be achieved if certain things are accomplished, then we're, then we're screwed. For Baudrillard, that is, that, is that is just the extension of the logic of the code that wants to codify everything. Rather, um, the, right, theoretical violence, not truth, is the only resource left to us. But even that falls short, 
because he states that but such a sentiment is ultimately utopian, because it would be beautiful to be a nihilist if there, was, if there were still a radicality, as it would be nice to be a terrorist if death, including that of the terrorists, still had meaning. Now that's following his ideas in Symbolic Exchange and Death, where he sees, suggests that death has been kind of eradicated, right? It has been denied its, um, been denied its radicality. So in the face of all this, what we are left with, and these are the final words that he gives us, is this is where seduction begins. And that is following directly from him saying, but that on which it has imposed its ephemeral, ephemeral reign, what it hoped to liquidate in order to impose the reign of the enlightenment, that is appearances, they are immortal, invulnerable, to the nihilism of meaning, or to non-meaning itself. So the for me, and what he proposes, is that the only alternative is that of seduction, which, for those that didn't, haven't read seduction yet, or haven't listened to what I probably naively have to say about it, seduction is that which challenges this logic of the code. Seduction is that which exists before, will exist after the code. Seduction is that which seduces light from the sun, brings it to the earth. And, and all these kind of fun, strange ideas. But anyways, for those, I think I'll, yeah, cut it off there. For those that made it this far, um, I hope you got something from this. Like, this is a really great book, and there, there are others of his I, I prefer, but uh, it's really great stuff. But if anyone has anything to add, I would certainly hope you'd do it, because I... I would love to hear what other people think. If I said anything dumb or incorrect, I would certainly hope that anyone would try to take me up on that, challenge me a little bit, at the same time be, you know, be uh, constructive. Don't give me uh, five-word critiques like, oh, you suck, please, or do that. I don't care. Whatever you want. But anyways, for those that listened this far, thanks a lot and take care.